Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still in the womb, down to the roots and the seabed of nature he created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair and then gone with a splash, vanished in cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks through the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing he went down to recover. That is... A segment from C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles. This is what is happening in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. This is what it's all about. God descends down to us by becoming a man. He descends further still by dying. But then he ascends through the resurrection, and ascends further still by His exaltation. And He does all of this and brings us with Him. Last week, Brother James discussed the coming down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still in the womb, down to the roots of nature He created. This is what Christmas is. But you, using Lewis's analogy of a diver who has stripped off his clothes and jumped into the water, he is not yet at the bottom. He has further still to dive if he's going to come out with that precious thing he came to save. Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 5 through 11 again. And we will be focusing on verse 8 this morning. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Christmas, cross, crown. We'll be focusing on the cross part today, if you didn't already figure that out. In verse 8. Now when we read in verse 8 that Jesus humbles Himself, where it says He humbled Himself, there is a tendency by people to think that maybe this is just reiterating the emptied Himself from verse 7. Right? Because in verse 7 it says He emptied Himself taking the form of a servant. And it's easy, if you're not careful, to think that when it says he humbles himself here, that it's just referring to Christmas again. Or that it's just referring to him coming in human form again. But I think what Paul is doing is he's bringing back up the Jesus humbling himself to let us know he's humbling himself further. So there is a sense in which Jesus obviously had to empty himself and humble himself, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men. He became a human being. This is what we call the incarnation in the flesh. He became a human being. He stepped into time and space as a baby. He had to to empty himself to do that. But that's just the diver jumping in the water. That's the stripping off of the clothes and jumping into the water. That's not the bottom yet. In order for the diver to get the thing that is sunk to the bottom, the diver has to go to the bottom. Not just jump in the water. Jesus had to do more than just Christmas. If we just stop the story at Christmas, we don't celebrate it. Because we all go to hell. You understand that, church? If Christmas is all that the story is, it is a terrible story. Christmas is for the cross. And here where it says he humbles himself, this is him going to death. This is him humbling himself further than just becoming a human being. This is, I am willing to humble myself to become a human being and further still be willing to die. I'm not just going to strip off my clothes and dive into the water. I'm going to dive into the water and I am going to go down, as Lewis said, into the vanishing cold water down through the increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. That's where the diver must go to get the treasure, and that is where Jesus must go to get his precious treasure. Verse 8 is the bottom. Verse 8 is the bottom. This is him humbling himself in regards to death on a cross. So this is about humbling himself further. So he empties himself, 
becoming a human. Now he humbles himself further, being willing to die, even death on a cross. Let that just sit sit on us for a moment. God died. You know this is why Islam rejects Christianity. God can't die. This is also what separates Christianity from Islam. God died. Jesus is God and he died. God Creator of everything, all-powerful, all-knowing, and is present everywhere, died. That is an unbelievable statement and a ridiculous statement for us to believe, if not true. You realize that your belief is ridiculous if it's not true. We believe God died. Now, the only way he could die is to jump in the water to become a human being. You can't go to the bottom if you're not in the water, right? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Hey, jump down to the bottom and pick that thing up for me down there. Well, the only way to go down there and get it with your own bare hands is to jump in the water. So he's got to jump in the water in order to do this, but you got to go to the bottom. It's a crazy belief if it's not true, but it is a necessary belief if in fact true. It is the only way to be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian if you do not believe God died. And the only way for God to die is for God to take on the nature of humanity. The only way for our salvation to be an eternal salvation is believing that God sent his son to die on a cross and pay the penalty for our sin. But that is exactly how Paul describes it over and over and over again. But the way that he describes it here is interesting, and I think it shows us at least three things. Number one, it says he was obedient to the point of death. What does it, what does it refer to when he says he was obedient to the point of death? What was Jesus obedient to? Again, if you're not careful, you can think he was obedient to death. But it says he was obedient to the point of death, not that he was obedient to death. It wasn't that death had control over him. As if he himself had to be obedient to death. Nor can we say that Jesus was obedient to the men who killed him. John 13, 3 says, The Father has given all things Into my hands. You see, the only satisfying answer when it comes to who who or what was Jesus obedient to, the only satisfying answer is the Father. John 13, 3 goes on to say, Jesus came from God. It was the Father and the Father's will that Jesus was obedient to. That's why he prays the night before he dies, not my will, your will be done. I need us to stop and think about something here for a moment that should blow our mind. Have you ever thought, have you ever tried to think about eternity? 
And you get the ice cream brain freeze. That ever happened to anybody, right? Where if if you think about it long enough, like God has always existed. Before there was a beginning, there was God. And God, no matter how far you go back, and you can't even, when you start talking about outside of time, you can't even say go back. Go back. That didn't make any sense when you start talking about outside of time. And then your brain just, just, oh, it hurts. It hurts. Or you start trying to think time with no end. The same thing kind of happens, right? But in order for us to understand it, we use a term like eternity past. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense, but it helps us. Eternity past. In eternity past, you had God the Father, you had God the Son, and you had God the Holy Spirit. And none of them were obedient to any of the other. There was no need for obedience. There was no need to humble themselves. There was perfect community, perfect relationship. God the Son was not in obedience to God the Father in eternity past. Okay? There are some who teach the eternal submission or subjugation of Jesus the Son to the Father. I reject that. I do not believe Jesus was eternally in submission to the Father. There was nothing to be in submission to. They were in perfect harmony with everything. Complete community, complete unity. Everything, every thought, every desire, everything was exactly the same. There was no reason for there to be obedience. But when Jesus becomes a human being, now he has a human flesh that he must submit that human flesh to the Father. Before he came, he just had a divine nature. That divine nature did not need to be submitted to the divine nature. That doesn't make any sense. Right? You with me? But once Jesus takes on a human nature, where now he has his God nature and his human nature, 100% God, 100% man, it's what we call the hypostatic union. Once Jesus has both of those, now he has to submit this human being, this human nature, should I say, he's got to submit that to the Father. That's why there is this sense, he says, not my will, your will be done. In his humanity, he doesn't want to have to go through what he's going to have to go through on the cross. But he's going to submit that to the Father. He's going to be obedient to the Father. So when we say that he was obedient to the point of death, what we mean is he's obedient to God the Father in his humanity to the point of death. God the Father wanted him to die, and he submits the human nature that he has taken on to God the Father. Make sense? Secondly, Jesus had the power not to die. John 10, 17 and 18 says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. No one took Jesus' life. Yes, they murdered him because murder was in their heart, but he had to allow himself to be murdered. Remember what they mocked him when he's, when he's up on that cross? They mocked him. You said you were going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. If that's true, why don't you come down off the cross? Can't even do that. Of course, they didn't even know what he was talking about. 
He's talking about himself as the temple. Jesus is on that cross and they're mocking him. Why, why don't you call the angels down and get you off of that cross? All it would have taken is a word. That's right. That's right. And the angels would have obeyed. Yes. Yes. Would have taken him off that cross. Yes. He was the one who was laying his life down. He had the power not to die. That's what makes this so unbelievably uh, uh, overwhelming for us is that Jesus had the power not to die. Now, in all of our humanity, we don't have the power not to die. At some point, we're going to die. It's just the reality of, uh, of the, the fallen world we live in. We don't have the power to say, yeah, not today, death. You know, your heart's about to give out and you just go, nope, it's not going to give out. I refuse to let it. We don't have that power. The God-man does. The God-man had that power. The God-man could have said, not today. Come get me, angels. So he became obedient to the Father by becoming a man and dying. Serving his Father, loving his people, and deciding not to use the power that he had to take himself off the cross. And then number three, this obedience proves he's God. What? This obedience proves he's God? Yes. The obedience of Jesus proves he's God. Let me explain. Only a divine being can accept death as obedience. For us, like I said, it's a necessity. When you die, you're not dying in obedience. You're dying. It's a necessity. For Jesus, it was obedience. Only a divine being could accept death as obedience. For everybody else, it's necessity. He alone, as the obedient son of the father, could choose death as his destiny. You have not chosen death as your destiny. It's a necessity. Jesus chose it as his destiny. No one took his life from him. He laid it down. Now, here is what is a freakier thing than that. I want, let's do, let's do an experiment in here today, okay? Everyone join with me in this experiment. I'm going to count to three. When I get to three, I want you to send your spirit out of your body, okay? I, whatever you got to do, breathe deep. Just try to force your spirit out of your body. One, two, three, go. Nobody could do it. You don't have the ability... To give up your spirit. When your body quits, your spirit, your spirit will be given up. It will be taken by God into the present heaven. But you don't have the ability here and now to decide, I'm going to give up my spirit now. Because you're not divine. You don't have that kind of power. Jesus did. Think about it. When Jesus was on the cross... His spirit wasn't just taken from him. He gave it up. 
He just, listen church, he decided to die. He decided to die. Okay, the sacrifice has been made. It has been accomplished. It is finished. I now give up my spirit. Being able to control the precious moment of your own death and giving up your spirit, again, this proves he was still 100% God. Yes, he was 100% man, so that body could give out. If he wasn't 100% man, then that body would never have given out. But because he was 100% God, he chose when that body would give out and he chose when his spirit would leave him. His obedience proves he's God. So he humbles himself to the point of death in submission to the Father. And then it says, even death on a cross. It wasn't just that he humbled himself to die. He humbled himself to die the most excruciating way any human being can die. The word excruciating literally means out of the cross. It's where the word came from. They had to make up a word to describe the horrors of someone dying on a cross. In our day and age, it's hard to understand the full horrors of this. We put crosses on our wall. We wear them around our neck. We have them as earrings or bracelets. There's pictures and paintings. And sometimes it's easy for us to forget the shame and disgust that came with the cross. It was, a, it was believed that to be crucified was to be cursed by God. A true follower of Yahweh would never touch such shame. Not even Roman citizens were crucified because it was so shameful. It was only for rebels, for thieves, for peasants, for the worst. Jesus could have been beheaded, could have been stoned, but instead he humbled himself not just to die, but to die on a cross, to die the worst way. Now we're at the bottom, church. It's dark down there. Jesus can't see anything but sin, shame, guilt. Jesus fills this utter darkness so prevalently that he feels like his father has turned his back and abandoned him. Now, I do not believe, and I have preached in this church, I have laid out my case for why I do not believe Jesus ever turned his back or abandoned. I mean, why God the Father never turned his back or abandoned Jesus. He felt like he did. Jesus certainly felt like it in his humanity. For the first time ever, Jesus felt like the Father wasn't there. He felt rejected. And in that moment, Jesus endured the weight of all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our brokenness, and all the pain of the world. 
And what makes the statement of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so powerful is because Jesus had to keep believing that his father's promises were true, even when he didn't feel them. He had to keep believing that if he endured the cross, if he died on the cross, he would be vindicated. He would be lifted back up. He would even be exalted to the right hand of the Father and given a name that was above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. He had to believe that was true even when he felt like the Father wasn't there. The Father promised he would give all power and all authority and a crown and, and name him King of kings and Lord of lords, but not until he endured the cross. Jesus had to believe on that cross. Lord, I know and I feel like you have forsaken me, but I also know the rest of Psalm 22. And the rest of Psalm 22 says you are with me and I am vindicated and I will receive the joy and the reward for this. This is why the cross was a victory for Jesus. Brother James, and I say this all the time, the cross was not a defeat. The cross was the win. It was the victory. It was an endurance test for him to suffer as long as he needed to in order to save his people. And he stood under that weight and won the victory. Jesus was on the cross for about six hours. Why six hours? I don't know. Except to say this, it was the exact amount of hours needed to bear the sin of God's people. That's all I can tell you. If it needed to be longer, he would have been on there longer. If it didn't need to be longer, he wouldn't have been on there for six hours. It would have been four. Six hours was the, by God's sovereignty, the right amount of time to pay for the sins of God's people. He didn't get off a second sooner than he was supposed to. He endured all the way to the bottom. I can imagine the father watching his beautiful and precious one unique son hanging on that tree suffering. And I can imagine the father saying, I know you can't feel me, son, but I'm here. Your father's here and I love you. Hold on, son. Hold on. Save your people. You were meant for this. You can do this. I can see the angels of heaven crying out, hold on, dear Jesus. Don't give up. Complete the redemption. Don't call us down because we'll have to come. Please hold on, dear Jesus. I can see the saints who have gone on into Abraham's bosom watching and saying, hold on, Yeshua. Hold on, endure the cross, bring us into the presence of God, save us and save your people. And Jesus hung on. And when the time was right, he said, it is now finished. And all of that sin, and all of that pressure, and all of that weight was gone. He endured and he died. So the father resurrects him in vindication. When he prayed, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The rest of the psalm, Psalm 22 says, the Lord will vindicate me. So when Jesus dies, three days later, guess what the father does? He vindicates Jesus' sacrifice by raising him from the dead. He proves that Jesus won at the cross by raising him from the dead. When we get to, a revelation, we get to Revelation chapter 5, we enter into the throne room of God. And here we see a victory celebration. Remember who are all singing this new song. It's the saints and the angels, and they're singing in celebration that Jesus did it. He conquered. He won. Here's what they sing. They sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This was a victory song in Revelation chapter 5. This was the saints and the angels of God saying, we were begging for you to hang on and you did it. And you deserve everything because of it. This is the victory of our king. The cross was victory. When Jesus went to the bottom, he won. He won. The cross was the biggest climactic event in human history. This is what saves us. And it was done by a man who lived his entire life like a humble no one with nothing. But in his sacrifice, he gained everything. And we are called to do the same thing. Die to ourselves. Present our bodies as living sacrifices. Humble ourselves. Christ probably didn't feel victorious in the moment of being on the cross, but he had his eyes on a prize that was set before him, and so should we. I mentioned earlier that no one killed Jesus, but he allowed them to. So that begs the question, why would Jesus choose this? Because he loved you. That's why. He loves you. Yes, it was to obey the Father, but in obedience to the Father, that meant loving you. Don't let that escape you this Christmas. Jesus loves you. It's a truth that we hear so often that it's easily brushed aside quickly without a second thought. But he suffered and died because he loves you. And I need to say this. I think it's so important. I shared it with my class today. I'm reading a devotion, an Advent devotion by Jared Wilson called The Gifts of Grace. And uh, every day, it's just a different gift that we get. And last night, I read the one on power and faith and love. There was three of them. I was, I was a little behind. And uh, as will happen. And, and I, I read the one on love. And here's what he said. And I thought this was... Stunning. He says, I reject the prosperity gospel. The idea that my faith, my actions, my belief means that God makes me healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. He believes is a heresy that he rejects. And then he says, 
But I find myself living some days as if I believe a version of it. He says, because I fall into the trap of believing, if I perform well, Jesus loves me more. If I have faith, if I'm faithful, if I'm good, if I'm righteous, if I'm holy, if I'm just, if I, if I live in such a way that makes God happy, then He accepts me more, or He loves me more, or He, he smiles at me more. Based upon how I perform or based upon how, how much faith I have. He said, it's just another version of the prosperity gospel. I get from God and it's contingent upon me. Church, we need to understand something very clearly. When we, when we think stuff like that, which we all do at times, we can fall into that if we're not careful. It's really just self-righteousness. We need to understand that what we are saying is, with our actions and with our thoughts, what we're saying is, this deed that I just did, whatever good deed it was, whatever faith it was, whatever wonderful thing it was, that this thing that I just did, if, if it merits more of God's love and acceptance of me, then this thing that I just did is more powerful and, and held with higher esteem to God the Father than the death of Jesus. Because if, if Jesus dying on the cross is not the greatest purchaser of our righteousness and our acceptance and our love, if, if, if all of that, if Jesus' death on the cross didn't get all of that for us, and your actions can get more of it, then what you believe is this action merits more of that for me than what Jesus did. Now, we would reject that totally. Intellectually. Sometimes we live that way. And don't lie and say you don't. Oh, you know what? God really, God's, God's really going to accept me today because I witnessed that person at Tom Thumb. Now, not that God isn't super ecstatic that you witnessed that person at Tom Thumb, but do not think that that action that you just did at Tom Thumb somehow is going to get you more love from God or going to get you more acceptance from God or God's going to look at you and go, oh, well, now, now I love you. He already gave his best for you. And it wasn't any of your actions that was his best. His best was Jesus. And because of Jesus, you have everything. And nothing you do changes that. I'll never forget. Yeah, I got a lot of time left. I'll never forget the first time I ever heard John Piper preach. Um, I had heard him, I think I had heard him um, on some CDs. This is back before there were... Uh, digital files to listen to. I was at a, a, a student week in Gloria, New Mexico with college students. John Piper preached. And his first point was justification by faith. His second point was justification by faith. His third point was justification by faith. And he made this statement, and it was super shocking at the time. He said... The reason 
Why, if you are a Christian and you go and get drunk and have sex with a woman tonight, or you get drunk and you go and have sex with your boyfriend tonight and commit fornication and sin before God, the reason why you can come back in here tomorrow night and worship Jesus is because of justification by faith. The work of Jesus keeps you righteous when your work is unrighteous. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. And, and, and since those years have happened, I've asked myself the question, why did it get so quiet? Why did it get so quiet? Because I, we were all wrestling with that. We were like, whoa, 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 whoa. You mean the grace of God being saved by grace through faith and this all being about the work of Jesus really means that no matter what horrible, terrifying, wicked sin we do, we can still come back in the presence of God? Yes. Yes, And when you walk in, your identity hasn't changed one bit. That's why it was so quiet. Because usually we base our relationship with God on how well we're doing performance-wise. God accepts me more. He loves me more. He, he, uh, he, he finds me more righteous. And he, he, he does all these things because of how well I'm doing. If it is based on how well you're doing, then you are done for. That's right. You're done for. It is not based on how well you're doing. It is based on how well Jesus did. Amen. Amen. Now, does that not motivate us to go live for yes. Jesus? Yes. If you're a Christian, it does. Yes. There were people who were griping about that message. I remember David, David, Brother David was there and he went and talked to the, the main leader because he was so excited. And the next morning, the next guy got up and said the opposite of John Piper. And we were like, what? This, is he trying to correct John Piper? And it was, it was like, it was just chaos. And Brother David went and talked to the leader of the thing and the leader of the thing didn't understand grace the way he should have. And we, we were thrilled with John Piper's message, even though we were wrestling with it. People get upset because they think that grace means you're just going to go live a wicked lifestyle and then come back to Jesus and go, hey, it doesn't matter, grace. How in the world could you hear this message today on what Jesus Christ has done for us and then turn around and believe some cheap, nonsense grace that means we can just go live how the world lives and it doesn't even matter. Nobody who has encountered Jesus can walk away from a message on the grace of God and the cross and how Christmas leads to the cross, could walk out of here and say, you know what I take away from this? I can sin more. Amen. And if you're thinking that, you need to get saved. Amen. That's right. You need to come to Jesus yes. and get saved. Because people who have been changed by God hear this message and they want to obey, they want to follow. I want to follow a king that has done that for me. A king who has given everything for me. Why would I not want to live in obedience to him? But your obedience doesn't merit you anything when it comes to your identity with God. Nothing. He died for you because he loves you. And he loved you while you were still a sinner. You hadn't been cleaned up yet. God the Father loved you, and that's why He sent Jesus. 
And now, because of the work of Jesus, it's all been done. It's just hard. To, it's hard for us to imagine how God can view us one way, then we sin, and He views us the exact same way before and after the sin. That's hard for us, isn't it? Because grace is scandalous. It's scandalous. And it's all because God the Father thinks that Jesus' work is better than yours. <laughs> that's why. He looks at his son's work and he says, that's all of it right there. And my people are going to be brought in, not based on their work, based on his work. That's why I sent him to begin with. So may this Christmas year, may we be overwhelmed with the love of God, with the love of Jesus from Christmas to the cross. And next week, back up again. Back up again, bringing the whole thing with him, ascending, being exalted to the right hand of the Father and given a name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, Every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the God the Father. That's why you can't talk about Christmas without talking about the cross. If you just talk about Christmas at Christmas and you don't talk about the cross, then Christmas doesn't mean anything. Christmas ain't Christmas without the cross.